the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God has been addressing the nation of Israel before they enter to conquer the Promised Land. God speaking through Moses reminded the people that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They were to not forget God's civil and ceremonial laws when dwelling in the land. Israel was to be a special and unique group of people, different from the rest of the nations. Now, God will address the care of people that might be looked over or completely forgotten once in the land. God addressed how the Israelites were to offer a sacrifice for when there was an unsolved murder, knowing that God is the avenger of the fallen. The Israelites were also to treat the women and children captured in war with utmost respect, not as slaves like the rest of the known world during this time. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 12. The first condition is that these women actually have rights. That's nuts. In that day, nobody had these laws. Nobody had these rules. Women had no rights, even women in their own country, let alone captured women, prisoners of war. But they do have rights in God's eyes. So the first condition is that this soldier must genuinely care for her. And if he met that condition, well, then she needed to commit to following the Lord if he was going to marry her. Look at verse 12. Well, then you shall bring her home because she had no home to stay in anymore. A woman would never do that in that society. It was just unheard of. It would be considered scandalous. But in this case, there was no other option. So bring her home, but you don't get to marry her yet. It says, you shall bring her to your house and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. As a Gentile, because it's not talking about warring with Jews, warring with Gentiles. As a Gentile, she would be ritually impure. And these were the cleansing rites. If you go back to Leviticus, you see if someone's unclean, this is what they have to do. They have to take off their old clothes. They have to cut their hair. They have to trim their nails and they have to be ritually purified. So this is not just an issue of shaming her and whatever, and you leave your people behind. Now you're going to be my wife. You're going to be my property. That's not the idea here. It's that she would be ritually impure as a Gentile. And so she had to go through the cleansing rites that a Jew would have to go to who wanted to come back into society and be able to worship the Lord. For her to agree to this would be her way of signifying, I'll be your wife. I will follow your God. I will follow the Lord. But again, that's not it. She's going to be a wife, not a slave. So she must be treated respectfully by being allowed to mourn the loss of her family in the war. So you can't even marry her yet when she says, yes, I'll be your wife and I will follow your God. Well, it says here also, she needs to bewail her father and her mother a full month. And then after that, you can go in unto her, be her husband, and she shall be your wife. 
It's interesting, even in this situation, though, she would still be exposed. Because most marriages were arranged by parents with contracts to protect the woman if she was divorced. For example, you've heard of a dowry, right? You would have to pay a dowry for the girl you wanted to marry. It's funny, we kind of do it the opposite way here now. We're like the bride's parents pay for the wedding. They actually take on the expense. That's not how it was back then. The guy took on all the expense because dowry was alimony in advance. That's what it was. The idea was, if I have to take her back in because you get rid of her, I have the finances to take care of her. So if you're going to pay all that money up front, the idea was the guy needed to be serious. He was going to be invested in this for life because he would have lost all that and then have no wife to show for it if he decides he doesn't want her anymore. When we look at a woman who's captured as a prisoner of war, she would have no such protection, no contract, no alimony to take care of her. So the Lord makes sure that he protects her. Look at verse 14. And it shall be. If you have no delight in her, you marry this gal, and then later on you have no delight in her, it means you don't want her anymore, then you shall let her go whither she will. But you shall not sell her at all for money, you shall not make merchandise of her, because you have humbled her. The phrase there, let go, is the Old Testament word for divorce. So it shall be, if if you don't want her anymore, then you need to give her a certificate of divorce that shows that you're the bad guy in this and that she didn't do anything wrong. That's what those writs of divorce were for, that she was not the bad guy here, that you're a jerk. And that way, the family could take her in or someone could take her in without feeling that they were dishonored because she cheated on him or did something else or wasn't faithful as a wife, whatever it might have been, which was in those situations, that woman would just be out on the street because her own family wouldn't take her in because she's the one that blew it. Not saying that's right, just how it was. You need to give her this writing of divorce so that she can go whither she will, which means, literally it means toward the direction of her life. It's her choice. You don't choose for her. She's not a prisoner of war anymore. She was your wife. And so you don't get to decide. You can't make merchandise of her. You can't sell her at all for money. The word there, make merchandise, means you can't treat her with brutality. You can't treat her like a slave because you have humbled her. That's an interesting phrase. What does it mean that he had humbled her? It means to humiliate, to dishonor, and to mistreat. In other words, you were disingenuous. You married her just for sexual pleasure. You married her just because you thought she was a pretty girl. You want to have a good time for a few months, a few weeks, whatever, and wanted to get rid of her. He goes, you have done her wrong. So you're going to let her go wherever she wants. You're going to make sure she's taken care of, and you're not going to mistreat her anymore. There's no such law in any other ancient culture for a prisoner of war. None. People read this and they critique the Bible and say, yeah, God hated women. I remember there was somebody who was showing me a video of a West Wing episode and where there was a a Christian who was there in the president's room. He had just gotten reelected or something, whatever, and and, and she wouldn't stand up for him or whatever because he believed in abortion and some other things and and stuff. And he starts rattling off all these old scriptures because, you know, she said, well, Leviticus says about homosexuality and this. And he starts rattling off all these other scriptures. He goes, so should I sell my daughter or not? And complete misunderstanding of the text. God doesn't devalue these women. He values these women higher than anyone else back then ever did, all right? Anyone. Giving them rights, making sure that a a soldier had to treat her like a person, and making sure that the only reason he could take her to wife is if he really cared about her and loved her. And then if he showed he was a phony, he had to make sure she was taken care of afterwards. You'll find that in no other religious text out there. You'll find that in no ancient culture out there. These women were special to God because he loves everybody. He loves everybody. Something I do need to bring up. I've actually had people use this verse to justify divorce in the case of not being in love with your spouse anymore. See, God gives me permission. I can divorce them. But let's be clear here. These verses are given to protect the woman. Moses in no way approves of this man's actions. 
He's not saying he's doing a good thing. This is to protect the woman. And the last part there where he says, you have humbled her, you have mistreated her, you have done wrong to her. The last part makes it clear that he has done her wrong by divorcing her. So God's not okay with that. If you're not in love with your spouse right now, then you need to ask God to give you a new heart for your spouse. Because he can. Because love isn't a feeling, it's a decision. One other thing we need to mention is that God is not for slavery. God is not for men who mistreat women. And God is not for divorce. He hates all those things. So don't let anyone tell you the Bible teaches that those things are okay. If you are married, please never treat your spouse like property. They aren't your sex slave. They aren't your maid. And they aren't your sugar daddy. They are your partner and your friend. And you're to treat one another with dignity, respect, and grace. Working hard to cultivate your love for one another each and every day. Amen? Since Moses is on the topic of marriage and family, he decides to initiate more protections for those who are in disadvantaged family situations. And so now he deals with women and children who are in a polygamous marriage. He says here in verse 15, now if a man have two wives, one beloved and the other hated, and that's that word for loved less. So he, li- he likes one more than the other. He shows favoritism to one over the other. And they have both born him children, both the beloved and the hated. And if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, well, then it shall be when he makes his sons to inherit that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength strength, the right of the firstborn is his. It starts off the whole scenario here by saying, if a man have two wives, and the word there, have, means if it come to pass that this happens, this is how I want you to deal with it. In other words, God doesn't want his people to be in polygamous situations, and he's not in favor of it. He's not okay with it. But if it happens, he ensures that there are protections for those who cannot protect themselves. And so here he says, if you've got a situation where this guy's got two wives and the wife that is not the favorite, but gives him his firstborn son, he can't decide, well, I like this wife better and I want her to have more stuff. And I want my son from that wife to have more stuff. So I'm going to elevate him to the status of firstborn. And well, I know you're your junior buddy, but sorry, you're going to be number three or you're going to be number four, number two. No, he says, Moses says, you can't do that. The person holding the prominence and the privilege regarding inheritance rights, the one that gets a double portion, literally it means two mouths worth, the standard blessing upon the firstborn needs to be the one that was actually firstborn. You cannot change that up because you like one wife over the other. We read this and we go, why would God even have to mention this? Because unfortunately, as Jesus said on the issue of marriage, men's hearts were hard. God had a clear standard for marriage, but men did something different. And so because of their hard hearts, God had to put boundaries around things. Israel did many things that that God didn't approve of. Some were so bad that God made them capital crimes. Things like, you know, breaking the Sabbath. Things like idolatry, adultery. But with other things, God understood their weakness as fallen human beings, and he put boundaries on those practices. And so God is still merciful today. He never changed. God, you know, when we fail like that, he knows our frame that we're simply dust. He doesn't immediately kick us out of the family when we have a failure. But when Jesus came to the earth, he did reestablish the standards that God set in the beginning. And he did not give any boundaries for hardened hearts. Now you might say, why did he do that in the New Testament? But why did he allow it in the Old Testament? Well, because we are different than the Old Testament saints. Their sins were covered. Ours are washed away. They didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them to empower them, but we never lack what we need to obey God because the Spirit is always available to us. We have a different position. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest in the Old Testament. He says, but he that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. 
We have greater privilege. We have greater closeness to God. We have greater power available to us. And therefore, Jesus reestablished God's standards for things like marriage, for things like how you treat an enemy. He reestablished those standards, and he didn't put other boundaries around them like Moses did. He didn't give wiggle room like Moses did. He said, this is a standard, and this is how it is. And that is why we do not go back to Israel's civil laws to determine God's moral standards. We don't go back to Deuteronomy 21 to figure out how to do marriage, because polygamy is never okay, all right? If any of you come to me and go, hey, Pastor Will, you know, I've got one wife. I'd like to have two. Will you marry us? I'm not only going to say no, I'm going to say you're not walking with the Lord. We don't go back here to figure out how to do marriage or anything else that is a a moral thing within our lives as Christians. Now, we see good principles still here that God thinks highly about marriage, but if we want to understand God's clear moral standards, God's clear commands, we must go to a time before the law, to the place where God created those things. You see, when God established marriage in the garden, he did not join Adam and Eve together as one and go, oh, let's invite Morningstar too. He didn't say that. He he didn't say more than two people. He didn't say it would be a man and a man or a woman and a woman. He joined a man and a woman together in marriage. God's design for marriage in the garden is clear. One man, one woman for life. That's his standard. That is his standard. That's his design. And mankind has always sought to corrupt that, whether it's through multiple marriages, whether it's through polygamy, or whether it's through same-gender relationships. And let me tell you something. Society can give the word marriage to all of those things, but that doesn't make it so. God created marriage, and therefore he defines it. So you can say you've got paper or whatever, but that doesn't make it a marriage. It's funny, when me and Beverly got married, we were on our honeymoon. We finally got to the place we're checking in. My dad had the number, and the phone rings. It's on my honeymoon night. Phone rings. My dad goes, don't do anything. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you forgot to sign the license. I hung up on him. The license didn't make us married. The moment I said I do, the woman was mine. All right? That's how it was. We undressed in the same room after that. We'd already crossed lines. It was done. When I do a wedding, I do not say words that are traditional to a marriage and that we usually see. People usually say, by the power vested in me, by the state of Florida or the U.S. government, they'll say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I never say that because the state of Florida doesn't give me any authority to do that. And I don't pronounce anybody husband and wife. I don't pronounce anybody. I say to them, I say, now, based on your vows and on the word of God, I can say to you that God has made you one flesh, husband and wife. And I now present you as such, as God has proclaimed. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. May I now introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. That's how I do my weddings. Because I don't make anybody married. The church doesn't make people married. The state doesn't make people married. God makes people married. And when two people of their free will make their promises to each other in a biblical way, the Bible says you're married. I don't recommend going out in the forest and getting married, okay? We don't need to go back to the 70s. Recommend premarital counseling. Recommend, you know, getting good advice, again, going through the right channels. But the truth is, if two people make their vows before God, that's what makes them married. God created marriage, and therefore he defines it. The Pharisees, it's interesting, when they confronted Jesus about marriage, that's why Jesus went all the way back to the garden. You know, they referenced Moses' civil laws, but Jesus said that's not God's heart. God gave that civil law to put boundaries on your behavior because your hearts weren't in line with his. Now, the principles of love and marriage and doing the right thing in marriage and protecting women, they're in those civil laws. So the principles are there. 
but we won't find a definition for marriage there. So that means polygamy is a no-no. Favoritism among your children is also a no-no. Don't do that. If you have multiple children, God wants you to love them all equally, even though you love them differently because they're different. Love them all equally, even if you relate to one more than another, or even if you like one better than another. I don't know about you, but I know it's extremely painful knowing you're not as important as somebody else. It doesn't hurt it so much when it's just your boss, but it can wound someone for life when it's from a parent. It can wound them for life. And I encourage you, if you struggle with loving one or more of your children, ask God to give his perspective on that child because I guarantee you, every one of your kids is his favorite. Every one of them. So they can all be your favorite too. Next, Moses covers a situation with where the elderly in a family need some protection. He says, now if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and that when they have chastened him, he will not hearken unto them, well then shall his father and mother lay hold on him and bring him out of the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then all of the men of this city, they shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall you put away evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. I use this all the time to keep my children in line. I'm just kidding. Don't ever do that. My dad here, he did that to me once. I was old enough to tell him he was quoting the scripture out of context. But anyway, the word there, lay hold of, it means to arrest, to get the authorities involved, to place into custody. You're not talking about like a four-year-old that they're going, you know, Johnny, you ate too much dinner. We all needed some. And they would drag him in, stone my kid. That's not what's going on here, Okay. This is a grown man, all right? We'll get to that in a minute. But they are to have this grown man arrested and brought to the city gates. Now, the city gates is where the judges held court. So again, this is a civil matter to be decided upon by the legal authorities, not mom and dad. I can't say enough tonight. Beating, injuring, or even killing your child because they're rebellious, none of those are supported by biblical parenting principles, none whatsoever. We look at this scenario and you go, but yeah, it's still kind of harsh, even if it's your grown child. Yes, it's harsh. But again, don't think anyone is arresting their six-year-old because they refuse to eat dinner a few times, okay? Their accusation is that he is a glutton and a drunkard. The word there, glutton, it doesn't mean he eats too much. It means someone who is recklessly extravagant and is wasteful in using resources. This is a grown man who refuses to step into adult life, but instead bleeds the family resources dry to consume it upon their own pleasure. That's who this is. Which means... These are older parents who are physically unable to expel their son from the home or to keep him from harming the rest of the family. If you have older children, you've realized this already. But as our children get older, we have less control as parents, right? I mean, it's just how it works. When my son hit the 17, 18 range, I couldn't control every little discussion he had with his schoolmates or with his friends. He was out and about. I realized over time, you know, I had less and less control. It's not that I had no control, but... My strategy for how I was going to help him had to change. Now, it's not a bad thing that we get less control because they need to become independent adults. And if you're keeping them from that, you're not doing a good job parenting. But that means that our focus needs to change from controlling their behavior to influencing their behavior. Boundaries must still exist. But if punishment is your only tool for your 17-year-old, you're probably going to fail. You're probably going to fail. If your grown child goes beyond the point of being able to control or influence, whether they're 12 or 19 or 29, they cannot remain in your home. They cannot. Permitting that is not love. In Proverbs 13, 24, 
Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, didn't live it out, but at least he knew it was right. In Proverbs 13, 24, he said this, he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. Now, since honoring one's father and one's mother was one of the Ten Commandments, this had severe civil penalties like the other of the Ten Commandments. And so the penalty for this was death. We have no record of that ever being enforced in Israel's history, so don't let anyone tell you the Bible's for killing disobedient children. But God's moral standards for parenting, they have not changed, and we do find them elsewhere in the Bible. And so we see where it says, if you don't chasten your child, then you do not love them. I love my kids, but I'm not going to let my, I'm not going to let any of them ever bleed away the family resources or live a life of wickedness under my roof. I'm not going to. My dad taught me some really good things, taught me how to be a man. You know, when I got older, he said to me, son, he goes, you know, I can give you free room and board. He goes, but you're going to pay for your own car insurance. You know, you're going to pay for your gas. You're going to pay for those things because you're going to need to do it soon on your own and you can't live here forever. He taught me how to be a responsible adult. And was it easy at times? No, I had the nastiest looking car. Ask Bev, all right? You could feel the ground beneath us when we were driving because there was so little between us and the road. I think she had to hold wires together if we wanted to listen to something on the radio. But that was a good lesson for me. Taught me to save my money so I could get something nicer that was more dependable and reliable. And in the end, she got a really nice ring so because I could save my money. But again, the idea is if we don't discipline our kids, we don't love them. If we don't find ways to influence them and we just allow them to exist under our roof without any influence or control, that's not loving our children. Now, the idea here of capital punishment is the goal is the same for every time he says capital punishment, that all Israel shall hear and they shall fear. It was to prevent others from repeating this evil behavior. And that should always be the goal of civil punishment, to prevent future crimes. Now, we have two last verses here. And God, he didn't command putting a criminal's body on display, but that was the cultural norm back then when you executed someone. So God gives boundaries for that too. In verse 22, he says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death so that you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day for he that is hanged is accursed of God. That your land be not defiled, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. God was seen as dwelling amidst his people. That's why everything in the tabernacle had to be pure. That's why anyone who came into the tabernacle had to be pure so that God wouldn't see any of our brokenness. So if you're hanging some criminal on a post and it's going to be there all day, God's going to have to look at it all day. And so the Lord says, no, you take that down lest it defile the land and I have to do something about it. Just the fact that you're sinners that have to do something about that. God says, take it down. Now, I love that and I'm going to close with this tonight because God doesn't throw around our past as a reminder of how bad we are. That's not what's before him all the time. This criminal would be put there after he's dead to show everybody, don't do this, this is how you end up. But God, he doesn't throw around our past as reminders to us. He says, take it down, bury it, let it be done. The enemy is the one who does that, and it's called condemnation. See, God sees us in Christ now. We're clean and we're pure in him. And thus, he can always look on us with grace and goodness, even though we still fail. Isn't that awesome? And why is that possible? Well, this last verse here, verse 23, is quoted in the New Testament in Galatians 3. And I want to leave you with that. Galatians 3. It's possible because of Christ. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, and here it is, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
See, Jesus was placed on a tree. And any time he has to look at our past, he doesn't look at us. He just looks to the cross. And guess what? The cross is empty, isn't it? There's no one on the cross anymore because Jesus rose from the dead. The price has been paid in full. And so when he sees us, he sees us not as cursed. Even though we're under Adam's curse, right? He doesn't see us as cursed. He sees us as clean. All life is important to God. There is value in all men and women because we are created in the image of God. So when innocent blood is shed and innocent lives are taken advantage of, God is displeased and disgusted. We are to value all life just as God does. That even means people that don't agree with us or that dislike us. If God has been merciful and kind to all of us, we ought to treat one another in the same light. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.